Joining us now, faithful member of the LA Army, Grace Teske. Thank you so much for joining us. Finally, we have someone with a little intelligence on the podcast. <laughs> Not a shot at our other guests, just this one is above and beyond. Yep. Uh, you are a biochem major at Windsor. A mas- You have a master's of immunology at McMaster. And now you work at Toronto General Hospital. But most importantly is you're a fan of our podcast. Huge so thank fan. you so much for being here. Oh, you're so welcome. How was my intro? I, I wanted to give you a, a good intro, hype you up good. How was that? That was yeah, it was great. It was like my resume. Oh, perfect. <laughs> you know, I, I might have left out a few uh, of your teenage jobs. Uh, what did you did you did you work at McDonald's movie theater? What? No, how did you start? even better. I worked at the library. Oh, oh, wow. we got a bookworm. A re- and yeah, then I got worked a at Shoppers Drug Mart, same okay. as Drake. Oh, okay, Drake worked at Shoppers. Yeah, it was in his started from the bottom. Video. Oh, shit. Oh. No way. Right. That, that's actually true. I should have known that. What do you think Drake did at Shoppers? Do you think he uh, do you think he was a cashier guy? Do you think he stocked the stocked the shelves? He was stocking think? shelves in the video, yeah. so I'm going to assume. And working on his rhymes the whole time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, they always put the boys in the back. <laughs> yeah. That sounds <laughs> like a name of a song. They put the girls at the front. <laughs> yeah. Boys at the back. It sounds like a song you'd write. Yeah. Not really. <laughs> 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 All right. So, uh. We wanted to get you in here to talk about um, some science. We want to learn from you, really. I have my notepad here. I got my coffee. I got my tweed-looking jacket. I'm just trying to trying to be a little more educational, trying to be a little uh, different on the podcast today. So Yeah, you're ready to sit at the coffee shop mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. be there for hours and not buy anything, just I did with as, my Are refills free? <laughs> as, yeah. to, as to men who... I don't know. I fancy myself. I, I just finished a, uh, a science book. Mm-hmm. I actually read it on the podcast. I love science. The only thing is, I'm not smart enough to even like comprehend the most minuscule of things, let mm-hmm. alone probably what you went through. Science so, was one of my worst subjects in school, for sure. Yeah. yeah. What science book did you read? Oh, no. <laughs> what is it even <laughs> called, Luke? <laughs> Hold on one second. I'll be right back. I don't even know. It was something to do with quantum physics, I think. Oh, no. Ooh. Or quantum mechanics? Something like that. It was like That's... he read an excerpt of the from the book on our podcast like three episodes ago. I wouldn't be able to read that either. <laughs> There's a, no chance. It's about the universe, and uh, it's by Brian Greene. Mm. Uh, oh, now you see. Here's the thing: physics is the only science subject that I never took. Uh, That's not even in high school. Right. I never took it. That's hilarious. Well, I don't know why it's hilarious. Is that because it's more? Is that because it's more math based? Or is it because um, it just didn't, you didn't need it for your, uh, like, choice of school? I didn't need it for my, for my degree that I, like, when I was going into undergrad, I knew that I didn't need it. Um, and then also, I'm not super at math. It's, right. like, it's really hard for me to get through it. So mm. it's like, if we don't have to do it, let's just not do it. It's always funny when the, like, the general population goes, oh, that's a scientist. But, like, there's biology, there's chemistry, yeah. and there's physics. They're drastically different. I don't know if... Maybe biology and chemistry are more similar than yeah. They have more. They, well, they all they're all connected, but just yeah. a certain way. Yeah, I mean, technically, is like big to small if you think of it that way. Like biology is like animal cells, and then chemistry is what's inside the cells, the 
well, there's more than that. There's That's inorganic chemistry, which isn't in your body. Mm-hmm. And then physics is like how those things stick together at the smallest, smallest levels, and then also forces. I'm oversimplifying it, and probably someone's going to No, get that's good for our audience, down. actually. It's good for our yeah, audience. Yeah, what I was actually thinking is, like, if you could give the a very heavy science answer and then redo it for people like me and really dumb it down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, answer it twice, so yeah. As if I'm at my defense. Yeah. And say it again as if I'm talking to someone who doesn't care. Yeah. So if they were, if it was the three ba- the Goldilocks and the three bears, right? Physics would be Papa Bear, right? That's the big stuff. Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's what I said. Mama Bear would be the middle stuff, biology, biology, and Baby Bear that would be chemistry, the little molecules. You know, is that uh, is that fair? <laughs> Well, it's not great. Um, Way off. Oh, shit. I'm already fucking up. (laughs) Um, Oh, yeah. So one of the questions in in this book, uh, this Brian Green guy often gets is, what is like the most uh, fascinating thing to you when it comes to science? What, what, like, for him, it's the fact that when you look up at the stars, most of them are dead already. Yeah. That is crazy. Um, So for me, what I find the most fascinating. Mm Mm-hmm. The one that always gets me is um, evolution because it's it's so extremely complex and interesting and just kind of does its own thing. Like the way that things have, I'm going to sound like such a moron right now to anyone listening. There's no possible way you can sound any dumber than I do right now. I just compared science to the three bears. So let's just, let's keep moving. But I just like, I find evolution so interesting that tiny adaptations over literally millions and millions of years made us full human beings. So like I mostly study immunology, which is your immune cells, how they work, how they interact with bacteria, viruses, how they interact with your body, how they keep you healthy. And even things like the interactions of this one protein on this one cell with something random over here was specifically evolved to make that work. And our immune systems work because of millions of years of evolution, but even on that tiny, tiny scale. So it's not just like our heads are a certain size or we're a certain height or something like that. Like that's it as well. But on the tiniest scale, like the way that our organs work, um, every plant that you've seen ever, like all of it is a product of so many adaptations, so many challenges, uh, so many other versions of that plant that didn't work the first million times. And then this one did work. It's just, I find it really, really interesting, like Mm -hmm. evolution and evolutionary diversity. What would you say the thing is that like impedes on ev- evolution the most? Or impedes does... on evolution? Yeah, like I don't know if that's a good question, but what, yeah, um, what do you mean by impedes on evolution? Like it, it, it kind of slows it down. I think it, it evolution is like is a natural effect that can't really be slowed down by like outward forces. I think what you're trying to say is like what impedes science in general. I don't know. Is that what you're trying to say? I don't know. I think I understand what you're trying to ask. So like what would make us evolve faster or slower? Is yeah, that yeah exa- exactly. So that's not um, necessarily relevant uh, to like, that's not quite how evolution works. So for example, the best way that I heard it described was someone was like, oh, oh, a worm and a human. Like, so humans are more evolved, right? It's like, well, no, we're all equally evolved. Right. We've all, we all came from the same one weird cell that suddenly started existing on the planet and moved forward. We're differently evolved. Mm-hmm. And what was the first cell? 
<laughs> that's a that's a question that's baffled scientists for years. Yeah. Uh, yeah, what's, I dark, what's dark matter? <laughs> like just questions that have yeah. no answer. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, so evolution is your favorite thing. Wow. Well, I, it's one that, I, that I makes me happy when I think about it. A so lot of things. Make what? Me happy. Okay, here's a good one. What is the thing that scares you most about science? Like if I mention um, the universe or uh, the actual distance be- between planets or, or just like the grand, like how big it truly is. My girlfriend like can't handle it. She gets like, she, she really gets frustrated and it over overwhelms her almost. What, how, like, what's your pet peeve? I would say when it comes to, I, I would agree with that. I can't handle space. Mm. I can't do it. I don't like it. I don't like, it just freaks me out. Um, it is know. almost like it's like so existential to think about space. Yeah. It's like it, it makes you like question like everything that you know when you just start thinking about how actually big space is. Like it's, yeah. it's insane. Yeah. Like it's and then crazy. people that love space talk about it. They're like so excited about it. They're like, it's, it never ends. It's overwhelming. There's no edge. The universe is expanding, but there's no edge. And eventually it's all going to collapse. And I'm like. <laughs> right. Oh you should read this. Yeah. You should read this book then because he talks about like how what time really means in the grand scheme of things and how we have taken time and and made it into like a 365 day year thing whereas time to like the universe is like 10 to the billionth like what's it called three yeah i don't know some astronomically large number that like humans can never comprehend an astronomical unit that's a thing there you go i think an astronomical unit is the distance between us and the sun. Isn't that it? Isn't that what an astronomical unit is? Luke, I'm, 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 I know you're... I'm, I'm just asking. I'm sending that out into the ether. Yeah. LA Army, are am you, I are right about an astronomical unit? Light year? Years, yeah. a, there's a light year and then there's an astronomical unit. I think okay. an astronomical I mean, unit is... Ooh, I, don't, I don't know. Yeah. I think this is something we're going to have to dig into. <laughs> Anyways. We're going to have actually, to bring on the guy that wrote the book. Yeah. I actually had a question... Uh, well, not a question. I wanted to state like my pet peeve, my biggest pet peeve about like modern science. And I, I want to be able to articulate this properly to see if to just make sure that um, like I'm getting my point across. Uh, the biggest complaint I've heard about modern science is that it's mostly privately funded. So the big money and the smartest scientists are going to the private sectors that are just trying to sell us, sell us stuff. Where like if there was more funding in other avenues of science that are more important to like our human existence, then the smarter scientists would be going there instead of going into um, like the development of AI and the development of like uh, how to like make us look at our phones more or how to or how to like program the brain to like want to buy something. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Okay. Um, I just wanted to bring that up and see if you had any thoughts on how science is funded. Like, I know you work in a laboratory, so like, and it's different in the States and different in Canada. So like, how is your lab funded? Is it completely funded by um, the government or do you you guys get private funding as well? Um, So my lab is, uh, we're an academic lab. We're associated with the University of Toronto, but then we're also associated with the hospital and it's it's more associated with a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
It depends. So academic research is usually funded by grants, which could come from the government. Most big grants do come from the government. But like since my lab right now does lung transplant research, they also get funded by like cystic fibrosis um, foundation and uh, other charitable organizations that raise okay. money and give it to research. So example, an example in cancer is like the Terry Fox Foundation. They raise a lot of money every year and give it to different cancer research and, or like you submit a grant to them and they give you money. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how our lab is funded is by grants. Okay. Um, and I, most I, I academic think... labs are funded by grants. Okay. Um, but then what you're kind of talking about is more industry yeah. and that's when they're not associated with a university mm-hmm. or education. And they often have a lot of money. So those are the ones, the only example that I'm thinking of right yeah. now is like Elizabeth Holmes and that blood thing. Oh, yeah, what yeah. What's the company called? I'm not sure. Doesn't matter. I'm not sure, yeah. Theranos. And okay. so like just that example, because that's what I thought of. She was funded by investors and people mm. that had a stake in the company. And then they like you could buy stocks in the company. And mm. so that's kind of a different way of getting your money, more like a business. Mm-hmm. Like a university is a business, but um, just the route of getting money is slightly different. And I so, think the intention is different too. Like if you're getting money yeah. from a, a company that has shareholders and has like individual investors opposed to having a university that where like, if a university is funding something, they'd be more intent, their intentions will be more like, let's expand science, let's find new things, let's um, expand our understanding in this certain section of science where like, a shareholder might have selfish reasons for wanting certain things and want certain amounts of money and certain amounts of of manpower to go into something that could make them more money, instead of providing us with information that we might need as a human race. That's, That's what, what you hope won't happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I feel like it's more it likely to happen. happen. But it could happen anywhere. Mm-hmm. Like, what if you get funding from a person and, mm-hmm. like, you're still academic, but you get funding from this one source and you want to please them? So, like, the problem with science a lot of the time is that uh, you have to go where the money is. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, there's some, like, a lot of. Um, I mean, that's like, that's like everything. Sorry to cut you off, but that, that's like everything. <laughs> yeah. 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 But like a lot of things, so for example, neglected tropical diseases are something that they're like these horrible diseases where you're like, I'm making this up, you like bleed out your eyes and die. Like all these really terrible diseases, but that don't really impact a lot of North Americans or Europeans, which is where a lot of the money comes from. Um, So like, but then something like cancer research, that's like the biggest dollars there are. Like a lot of people flock towards cancer because they know that's where the funding is. Um, and you know, we're people, we want to make money for what we do. Mm -hmm. So if someone's saying, Hey, come work for our super cool company, we're going to pay you way more than this university ever will. And if it's what you care about, you might go there. Right. I want to, I want to get into like your, uh, progression through like your schooling and then like into working at Toronto general. But like, I think the masters of immunology right now is like the, that's what I kind of want to focus on too, because it's the study of your immune system and how you fight off deadly bacteria and viruses. And obviously right now we're going through a pandemic is something that we can definitely talk about. Maybe get it. Am I quiet? Yeah. You're like talking out like this. It's yeah. maybe, okay. It's, it's difficult. Sitting yeah, this way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, my train of thought just got interrupted, but 
Um, Immunology, pandemic. Yes. Yeah. So let yeah, I, I want to get more into like how maybe people can stay safer or improve their immune systems or um, just maybe uh, give us more of an understanding on what even we're dealing with right now because there's so much news. There's there's news where I like I heard that it was it was it's a surface-borne uh, virus, so make sure you don't touch any metal surfaces without gloves on. And then people were like, well, don't wear gloves because gloves are going to transfer them from surface to surface. Then it was like, you got to wear a mask because it protects you. And then it was like, actually, you got to wear a mask because it protects other people. So I feel like there's been a lot of crisscrossing information, and I'd like to like kind of like get it from figure, someone who actually knows yeah, what they're talking figure about. Out, yeah. From somebody who is like a legit okay. trusted source. Well, if we're going to do COVID, I have to do disclaimer, disclaimer, sure. asterisk, asterisk. Okay. I sure. am not a virologist. I am not a medical doctor. I'm not sure. any kind of doctor. Sure. I'm not a epidemiologist. Mm -hmm. So like major asterisk. Yeah. Well, I think it's understood that you just know more than we do. So maybe you'd be able to shine a little bit more of a light on it yeah, and we would sure. be able to provide our audience kind of thing. So, uh, Luke, do you have any questions about it, or what do you want to talk about? Well, I, <laughs> I like I wanted to get into what like what you were actually doing in your lab, and then we can carry that into what I just talked about. Yeah. Okay. So, like, what were you doing exactly when you were getting your master's at at uh, university? Uh, sure. Well, I'm a master's at McMaster. Mm. Oh yeah. I, mean, I know. Um, oh, believe me, I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For the audience, she went to McMaster University. It's like one of the top science schools in Canada. So. Whoa. We got a lot of research there. Yes. Um. So at McMaster, I worked with Dr. Dawn Bodish. Follow her on Instagram. Um. She's immunologist extraordinaire. That's my plug. And um. So my project was looking at the immune system in kids with specifically with autism, but also with other neurodevelopmental disorders like ADHD, and looking at their immune systems and seeing if we could associate aspects of their immune systems with their behavioral outcomes. So a little background on that. Um, autism is super, super complex and super weird, and we don't quite know what causes it, but we kind of have an idea and, and all these things. So basically, some people found out a couple of things. Um, some people found out that um, in some cases, again, all this is, we're still working on it, figuring it out, but they found that in some uh, cases, there was a higher risk of children having autism if the mother, while she was pregnant in the first trimester, got like a viral infection or a really severe infection. So that's called like the immune activation model. So there was some kind of immune insult. And then for whatever reason, there might have been autism as a result of that. Again, not all cases, mm -hmm. not proven by any means, just noticed in some cases. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing is that they found that kids with autism um, often had higher what are called pro-inflammatory cytokines. So those are basically your immune system's messengers. So if something's wrong, uh, sometimes an immune cell, sometimes another cell, but we'll say immune cell right now, will say something's wrong, something's wrong, and release all these proteins that are like, something's wrong, and it goes and tells the other cells kind of what's wrong based on the types of proteins it releases. So it's, an, it's a messenger. Mm. Um, and those proteins are known to be able to go to the brain and talk to the brain. And so um, it's thought that along with genetics, other environmental factors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, either higher inflammation could cause autism behaviors to be worse 
or potentially there's a causative effect of this inflammation on autism. So what I was looking at is what does the immune system look like in kids with autism? How does that impact the behaviors that they're showing? Because it is a behavioral disorder. Like mm-hmm. that's how it presents. And that's that. So, oh, uh, so what, oh, sorry, you go. Um, I actually worked with a father of a child who was autistic and he um, was doing a lot of research uh, in the disease because he wanted to understand what his son had had mm-hmm. or has. Um, and he was explaining it to me uh, the disease, uh, it's a behavioral disease exactly. Um, and he was explaining it to me, uh, like it's like a, it's like a five, like a 10 lane highway, uh, where each lane represents like certain emotions or like responses that are going to the brain. And it's like, they end up crisscrossing. So, uh, the person who has autism isn't able to fully express their emotions and, uh, their, um, uh, like they're whatever they're trying to feel, uh, won't come out properly because it's getting stopped by this disorder that they have. Um, is that similar to like how the, uh, I I guess how the, uh, immune, immune systems messengers aren't able to get the proper message to the brains. Like, would that be similar? Uh, um, that's not necessarily similar. Okay. Um, so what you're saying Yes, in general. So, like, it's issues with communication. Mm-hmm. It's issues with uh, behaviors in general. And you're right, that is, like, a common problem. Even people with very mild autism um, have a lot of trouble expressing themselves. But not only that, but understanding other people expressing themselves. It doesn't make sense. Um, but then there's also, like, there are some people that have certain uh, restrictive behaviors. Like, they can't handle certain scenarios or there's like sensory oversensitivity where loud noises or too much visual going on. It yeah, just like it's way too much for them. Um, so yeah, I think that's like a pretty reasonable description is that 10 lane highway, no one can get anywhere that they need to go. Yeah. Um, so, uh, keep going. I'll, yeah. Keep going. Oh, and I was just going to say like in the sense, like with what I was talking about with the cytokines and the immune system and things like that, we don't, really know enough to say like we don't have any causative link okay all we can see is an association between this type of immune response this one protein this one scenario and then a group of these behaviors but then autism itself is really 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 heterogeneous everybody presents very differently from one another you could have Mm -hmm. two very severe cases that present totally differently Mm -hmm. so it's very difficult to say this thing causes this thing because you will very easily find a kid where it's like, that doesn't happen at all for this kid. So it's really tricky um, to say anything definite. It's just in general, we were seeing if we can find an association between inflammation in general and maybe a certain presentation or a certain behavior or a certain group uh, just to know more Mm -hmm. the end goal in the whole world of everything is to maybe get better treatment because there's no autism treatments like there's behavior intervention and it works great but there's There's nothing you can do so i i want to know like how in you like were you working in a lab Mm -hmm. how how like how would you run tests what what would go on in the lab like how would it all operate how would it work Okay. Give me the breakdown. <laughs> I want to know. I'm there answering my master's questions because it's been like yeah. two years since I was in my degree. So I like didn't remember any of the specifics, but I got the lab stuff down because okay. I still do that. Cool. So what my project was is that we had 
kids with autism, kids with ADHD, and then also kids with uh, no neurodevelopmental disorders at all. And we would take blood from them. And in your blood, you have immune cells. They're called you, and they have, they're called white blood cells usually. Mm-hmm. And there's a, it's there are a bunch of different types of cells that just run around in your blood, and other places. Like that osmosis, was very... like Osmosis Jones. You got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> great flick. Great, great flick. Um, so you have immune cells in your blood. So what we would do is we would take their blood. I would isolate the immune cells and I would freeze them, but that's not relevant. And then, uh, so to look at the immune cells, I would do a method called flow cytometry. And the way that flow cytometry works, it's a way for you to look at a single cell at a time in potentially millions of cells. I usually did not have millions of cells. Um, so what you do, I'm trying to, let me. That's okay. I haven't explained flow cytometry in a while. I got to okay. get to the start. Mm. Do you want to know what flow cytometry I want to know it all. You're, you're, I wanna, we want to know the intricate de- details. I feel like a lot of people want to know this information. I know when Joe Rogan has a scientist on, I'm like fully captivated. So the more you talk, the better. Okay, great. If you if there's something you don't want to know, just stop me. <laughs> so like there's so much crap. We want to know. We want to know. We want to know. Mm. All right. So you have a cell. Mm-hmm. Let's say it's a T cell. That's a type of immune cell called a T cell. The card. You have a T cell. The T cell is a cell. It has a membrane wrapped around it, and on its membrane are all these little receptors sticking out of it which are different proteins and these receptors do different things so there are ways that they talk to other cells their way that they get signals so for example they have receptors that grab onto those cytokines that might be floating around and they're like oh this is going on and they know what they have to do because of it um that's another thing okay no i can't do that <laughs> i'm getting so far ahead of you're myself you're getting excited you're getting excited <laughs> i know we're, oh. yeah. <laughs> i like science yeah so um cell has receptors there are these molecules called antibodies, and antibodies look kind of like a little little pitchfork. They have like a bottom region and then a top region that's kind of like a V, and um, the V top of it is very, very specific. It's called the variable region, and it is extremely specific for a certain group of amino acids. <laughs> Okay. No, we'll do it do differently than that. It's very specific for a certain protein. So that means that it will grab onto that protein really, really tightly and not let go because it likes that protein the very best. So you have an antibody. It's very specific for, so on this T cell, there's a receptor called CD3, and that's how you find T cells. They have a CD3 receptor sticking out of the top of them. Um, and then you have an antibody that its variable region is specific for CD, the CD3 receptor. On the other end of the antibody, which is the stick part, so if this is what your antibody looks like, this is the worst antibody demonstration in the whole world. (laughs) That bottom part is called the constant region. And what we do is on the bottom part of that antibody, we put a color. So it's a color that um, when it's hit with a certain wavelength of light, will let off fluorescence at a certain wavelength as well. And that's how you identify a certain disease or virus? This is how we identify that one protein. So if I have a batch of cells... And I put into this batch of cells the antibody that's specific for CD3. So that one antibody with one color that's specific for that one protein. Put it in, mix it around, and put it through the flow cytometer. The way that the flow cytometer works is that they make the cells go as fast as they can, single file, through a tube. And as it's going through that tube, it's being hit by different lasers of different wavelengths, depending on what you put in the machine. 
And if a cell goes through, is hit with that laser, and that CD3 antibody is there, the color will, so the uh, fluorophore will let off its color, and the machine will detect that. Hmm. And that way you can count the number of cells that have that CD3 receptor, thus you can count the number of T cells in that group of cells. Okay. okay. And what will that so tell what you? we do in so what I did is we would make a what we call the cocktail of a bunch of different antibodies with a bunch of different receptors. So we could find T cells, we could find B cells, we could find NK cells. These are all different immune cells, and we could find monocytes. My project mostly spoke focused on monocytes, mm -hmm. and then of those monocytes, we could look. We put on uh, antibodies for different receptors, so we could see what type of monocyte it was, um, maybe if it was activated or not activated, so we could get an idea of what was in the immune system of these kids and how the immune system was potentially behaving based on the receptors that they are expressing at the time that we took their blood. So you're mostly looking for commonalities between different samples uh, and different behavioral uh, patterns? Is that what you're looking for? If yeah, I, so the, the, the rudimentary analysis that we yeah. did, because uh, I was like the start of this project, there's another student taking over the project, there's going to be a lot more work on this. Mm -hmm. but, but the basic that I did was a straightforward correlation, okay. which is, of course, not causation. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So it would, we would say, okay, CD3 again, we'll say. Yes, so yes. T cells. How many T cells were there versus how many restrictive behaviors did they have? And if T cells number of T cells went up and restrictive behaviors went up, we could say T cells were associated with more restrictive behaviors. That is not what we found. Don't yeah. call me no, as no, that no, means the results. No, but it's that just was, a way to explain it. Yeah, but that was yeah. the idea. We just looked for basic correlation, what was associated with what behaviors. Mm. It's interesting once you break it down to like, like the, like the types of cells like that. And just like, How, you're yeah. trying to, you're trying to find. So like, like, if I, I want to explain it to you to make sure that I understand it. Mm -hmm. So what, what you're saying is so say there's two samples and this one has like a very, very high amount of T cells that have been identified. And this one has a very high amount of T cells that have been identified. And the, both of those children from that sample are both showing high levels of like um, – of, or like hot like high uh, levels of like behave like antisocial behavior would that be like a correlation that you're looking for or would that or would it be more nuanced than that well um so it's that's a very simplified version of that, it that's what and i mean not, so it would be more nuanced that's the idea and of course it wasn't too yeah. that's not very rigorous yeah. science I'm, <laughs> I'm literally dumbing it down just so that i can Simp like obviously it's like hundreds yeah we of were samples. looking for basic associations yeah. in our parameters what associates with what okay and then from that base we can move forward and mm. say because we have more samples from these kids mm. okay let's look deeper of those T cells which ones were activated which ones were memory because you have something called immune memory where your immune cells remember things which is super cool wow, that's like, crazy um so. You know, just looking, and then like you can dig deeper into the things because you, immune system's huge. I made a terrible mistake when I went into immunology. I'd never taken an immunology class, and then I did an immunology master's, and the <laughs> immune system is super, super, super complicated. See, you didn't make I did a not do myself any because favors. I can see when you talk about it, your eyes light up and you get excited, and that's I what like that, science. 
That's what I mean. So you didn't make a mistake because you obviously love it and you're obviously excited to talk about it. So don't yeah. say you made a mistake. You're in the right field because you're actually making a dummy like me kind of understand it. Right. Okay. Well, I have a question. You're not making any sense. Mm-hmm. When, when you're doing these tests, are you, like, are you able to differentiate like you were saying some people with autism react differently to like flashing lights or they're socially uncomfortable or socially unaware. Like, I don't know the full diagnosis of someone with autism, but when you run these tests, can you pick out like, Oh, that might be why the light affects them differently than. See what, when she mentioned correlation, not causation. Okay. So causation has nothing to do with it. it. You're just looking for patterns that, could point you in a direction, not like solidify one direction, oh, okay, right? Cool. Yeah. So you're yeah, not, it's very, very, yeah. very difficult in science to prove causation. Yeah. Very difficult. It takes a lot of work. I, another thing I've heard is that the, I don't know if the, it's the diagnosis ability, capabilities of like, I don't know, who, who would diagnose someone with, with autism, first of all? Um, it's usually... Um, I don't know if... No, I don't know if psychiatrists do that. I should know this, and I don't. And I, I, um, I want to, I basically, I want to know: is it is the are there more people being diagnosed with autism because it's becoming more common, or is it that we're just better at widely accepted? No, oh, I've got this one. I've got okay. this one. Okay. Don't you worry. I'm Here on we go. it. Go. Let's go. So, um, the most people think that we are just getting better at finding it. So, first description of autism was in the 40s. And it was very, very simple. And it was, I don't want to say it wasn't accepted, but it wasn't widely used. Like it's only been the last 30, 40 years that we've kind of stopped diagnosing people with what used to be called mental retardation and started diagnosing them with autism or something else because there's so many potential disorders that someone could have. Um, And we're better at finding it now. And not only that, but we're better at finding it in different people. So the diagnosis of autism that we understand best, which is the classic rain man version of autism. You know what I mean? Like very, like very strict schedule does not give one way or another, um, has very poor adaptive behaviors. Um, light sounds are too much. Um, communication is not great. Like that's very, that's a very specific version of autism, and they're all quite similar because they have to be the same disorder. So, so it's now called spectrum, autism spectrum yeah. disorder because there are so many different ways to present. But that is the most common in boys. And what we've been learning is that we are really, really, really bad at finding autism in girls. Oh, so actually, it's like I a four-to-one ratio of autism in boys and girls. There's way more with boys, but mm-hmm. we now think it's because we can't find it. We don't know how to see it. Um, it might not be that simple. There might also be like genetically girls are less likely to get autism, but what they're finding is that females do this thing called, um, well, I'm going to get it wrong. Oh, masking. So in general, females have better social behaviors. We're kind of more social creatures, not again, not black and white, just mm-hmm. in general, evolutionarily, we're a bit more social. All so right. That's it. Yeah, I'm offended. <laughs> <laughs> right, so, you, know, yeah. you get in your group of friends and yeah. you stand out at recess and you just 
stand together and you chat about whatever. Absolutely. And boys are running in circles. So that's <laughs> very simple. Yeah. So what they found is that um, women are getting diagnosed with autism way later in life, whereas usually when boys get diagnosed with autism, the classic diagnosis age for very severe autism is between one and two. Um, but then you could also get diagnosed at four, five, six, once you're starting to get socialized and you're realizing that you can't really do it. Um, less severe autism you usually find later. And then girls aren't getting diagnosed until they're adults because they have learned how to mask their autism uh, presentations mm -hmm. because they were around all these friends, around all these girls. They watched them and were like, okay, what I'm doing is not correct hmm. because I'm not getting the correct response when I say this or when I don't look them in the eyes or like this girl got mad at me because I made this comment like these are these are not real examples but they found that they have learned how to kind of push back their autistic behaviors when they're less severe and then we can't find it um so usually when we um diagnose girls with autism they're very 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 severe wow. like they're nonverbal, or they definitely can't uh function regularly in a classroom mm. or something like that um what was the average age of both like men and women getting diagnosed? Severe, she said one to two. Okay. And then, but it w more when it's more social, she said once you start getting introduced to social situations, like four or five. Oh, yeah, okay. so we're, and we're getting better at finding it younger, and we're getting better at finding it in general. You know, like, and that's was your original question: is yeah. is there more autism? Or are we just better at finding it? Really, we're a lot better at finding it. We've put the attention on it. Um, people that aren't behavioral experts know what autism is, they can look and say, my three-year-old never looks me in the eye and doesn't talk to anybody. And people will be like, and you know, potentially that kid has autism, but before they'd just be like, he's shy. And so maybe he is shy, like, I, don't, I don't know, right. but we're just better to, at finding it and better at thinking about it. They used to just paint all mental illness with one brush. Right. Okay, okay, um, they're crazy. Like they just paint it with one brush and now there's like, there's like, what she was saying, there's autism, there's Down syndrome, there's, um, there's ADHD, there's Asperger's, like, there's just, there's, like, there's so many yeah, different categories. types of mental illness, there's so many different types that, um, we're really only scratching the surface on what we know about them, right? And, uh, yeah, what I would say next is, like, or my next question would be, what, so you were saying, uh, if a mother in what, I think it's the first trimester contracts a virus, that can be something that leads to... Autism. What are some other things that might? They were just looking for the correlation between that. Yeah, that was just uh, that was just associated. I just can't get anything right. <laughs> yeah. what, what, that, was, I, what... that was so. Like you're right. I did say that, but that was the uh, kind of found an association between that, and that is not saying that any mother who has an illness in their first trimester should be like, "I'm having a kid with autism. Right. It's over. It's over. like it's that plus genetics plus other environmental factors that we don't understand yet. Plus, like, it could be plus a million billion things. Yeah. They just found that in some cases, we do something that's called, like, a, I think a hazard ratio is, is death. But this isn't death. Mm -hmm. But, like, a similar kind of statistical test where it's, like, when in this group, for this study, when mothers had a severe viral infection, I think it was, in the first trimester, there was a blah, blah, blah increase hazard ratio, which means there was an increased likelihood compared to mothers who didn't have right. an infection in the first trimester that that child would have autism. That's not saying that none of these other children had autism. It's not saying that every one of these ones did. And well, yeah, another thing, like I'm trying to figure out what is another thing, like environmental things that could possibly cause it, like 
Oh, air pollution. Never say cause. Never say cause. Oh. Because there's no causation. She's she keeps saying that, right? Never. Well, there is causation. We just don't know. Yeah. yeah. But necessarily. Yeah, but, so she can't really answer that, right? Because we yeah, don't uh, know what could cause it, like or like what you need to avoid or what could happen. It's just kind of like the way I'm thinking about it and the way you're describing it is like it's like probability, where it's like there's like a bunch of different op of options and like certain ones have to hit for a certain outcome to come, but that's not the only way for those outcomes to hit for that outcome to be. Right. Does that make sense? What I just said? Kind of. Yeah. yeah I mean, like just, I'm just worried that I'm simplifying it. I'm simplifying it. The scientist said that you do this, you get autism. Like, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I mean. That's I'll, I'm I'll to stop, stop asking that question. That's why I'm trying to stop the causation talk. Honestly, we don't know what causes autism. Right. We, have, yeah. Yeah, we don't know. No one knows. We have seen some associations with certain genes we definitely know it's genetic because they've done like twin studies and sibling studies and it is genetic to a degree. Um, I just know from like the TLC shows I've watched, they, they've talked about like eating healthy actually helps reduce the symptoms. I don't know if that's complete crap, but. So that is very, very interesting because there is anecdotal evidence of that. So they have anecdotal evidence of gluten-free diets. They have done studies like scientific studies of people with autism and they've not yet found any diet or something like that that um, makes your autism better mm. in a rigorous scientific way. Again, people with autism are extremely heterogeneous. Potentially having a gluten-free diet works for this one kid, and potentially this other kid will make absolutely no difference in the whole world. Like right. We don't know, and everyone is so different. Like It's not like kind of like a cancer where it's like, well, it's this type of cancer. Mm -hmm. So if we attack it with this one thing and this gene, it'll go away. Um, so there is quite a bit of anecdotal evidence. So for example, this one mother and this one child being like, I started taking this food out of my kid's diet and suddenly their behaviors got better. Like there are Cases, stories of yeah, that. Yeah. I'm not doubting that, but there's not anything that is like scientifically proven and accepted in medicine in any way. Okay. So going back to when you were talking about identifying certain proteins in blood samples and certain antibodies, um, that is obviously a big buzzword that you hear that we we're hearing all the time is the, antibodies? An, the <laughs> antibodies. Yeah. So like, do you have the antibodies? He has the antibodies. You got to have the antibodies or else you won't know if you have it. So would it be the same type of a process? Would it go through that? What, what, what was the machine you said that lined up the cells? Single, single uh, file? Yeah. No, that's not. So that's no. a little different. Okay. So, so how would you identify the antibodies in uh, a potential coronavirus or COVID-19? Sorry. Uh, patient? Like, would it, would it be a similar process or? Um, uh, well, I've never done that, so I'm not 100% mm -hmm. sure. So okay. do you know, first of all, do you know what antibodies are? Um, I know that I, I, this is my very limited understanding of what they could be. And this isn't a definite. I believe they are, it's the evidence, maybe it's the evidence of, of white blood cells that were there to fight off the virus. Is that something like, is that what it is? I think, I think no, you do with zombie cells, the right, but I'm on the right kind of idea. Zombie you're cells. You're on the right track. They're okay. basically, <laughs> so what you're saying is that they're evidence that you had the virus. Yes. Is kind of what you're saying, right? Yes. So um, that's not what they are, but that is what they represent in this scenario. So okay. um, antibodies, so you have 
cells called B cells in your mm -hmm. immune system. And B cells uh, are your antibody producing cells. Someone who said B cells going to get mad at me and be like, that's a plasma cell, but we're not going to listen to B cell people. Okay. B cells beat it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, they produce antibodies and that's their job in the immune system. So basically what happens is um, your immune system recognizes, let's say a, let's say a virus because there's a pandemic right now. Okay. There's a virus. And your immune system looks at it and says, here's a virus. I found this virus. Here's what it looks like. And then your B cells produce those antibodies that are specific for that virus. So here's what it looks like. Here are the proteins on the outside of it because the virus is DNA inside a protein capsule. Okay. Most of the time, that's what it is. That's what this one is. And there are all these proteins on the outside. And then the B cell says, okay, I can identify those for sure. And it makes these antibodies, which are the pitchfork looking things that are very specific for that. Okay. And then what they do is they release all these antibodies and they, they don't swim, they're a molecule, but they float around. And then if they see it, they grab onto it. Or in the case of a virus, usually a virus lives inside one of your cells. They can float around, but they often live inside one of your cells. And then what your cell is doing when it's infected is taking parts of the virus and lifting it out onto its surface saying, there's some, or the, its surface and saying, there's something here, there's something here, come, help, come help get me. it, yeah. come help me. Um, and so your, the antibodies would find that, grab onto it and stay there. And antibodies are a flag for other immune cells to come and attack. So oh, okay. in the case of a virus, it's grabbed onto that um, cell that's infected that's saying, I'm here, I'm here, come help me. Mm. And then another cell comes along, usually a T cell, I think. My <laughs> announcement for immunologists, my adaptive immunology isn't that good. I'm better at innate. You hear that, everyone? All you... <laughs> <laughs> I'm so afraid yeah. of people getting mad at me for being don't, wrong. <laughs> don't worry. So it's like that... Uh... It's like that torch in Lord of the Rings that they have to light at the top of the mountain every single time to like warn the soldiers that like shit's going down over here. We need you. Right. Kind of like no, that. exactly like, like that. that. I would say that that is. Way off. I'm trying to make like rudimentary like uh, ex of like comparisons and they're just. Not I mean, like it's not. I, I shouldn't say that. It's not. It's not. You're not wrong. Okay. What, okay. I got to know. What's a zombie cell? I actually, I had, a, yeah, I had another question. Okay, you go. As well. I think I stumped her. <laughs> so, um, I don't know. <laughs> so I believe at the beginning of uh, the pandemic, uh, we were, we were like the first step in like fighting the disease was like actually finding the antibodies, right? Like identifying what the antibodies were so that we could identify them in other samples. Am I correct on that? Um, or did we already know what the antibodies were going to look like when this thing broke? Well, I mean, you also mm, first step was look, was finding what the virus looked like. Okay. So, ooh, make master plug, make master plug. All right. Um, so it's easy to find the DNA of a virus because what you do is you take a sample from a person that's infected, mash it up, and then put it through a genome sequencing machine and you're like, there's the gene. Um, but to actually be able to isolate and grow the virus is more difficult because you have to keep it alive and put it in the correct conditions to grow it. Um, what's called in vitro, which is not in a person, in a dish. Tube? Oh, um, dish. And the, there's a person at McMaster who did his PhD studying uh, bat coronaviruses. Hmm. 
which was very timely because yeah. the coronavirus that we got was a bat one. Wow. So um, he was the the person that um, that isolated it. So which corona- is very cool. Right, so there are multiple different coronaviruses, but this one just specifically happened to be bat central or central. Uh, yeah. yeah so, I'm, uh, okay. There are multiple strains of corona. I know that. I know. Yeah. Like it, it. I don't know. It just. His PhD study being bat coronaviruses, like how many different, so, like, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. The majority, or I don't want to say the majority, not a virologist, not a virologist. Okay. A lot of our viruses come from animals. Mm-hmm. So spillover from animals is extremely common. So we all know swine flu. We all know bird flu. Those are strains of influenza that started in birds or pigs. Mm-hmm. Swine, pig, mm-hmm. bird, bird, and <laughs> jumped to humans. Mm. So what that means is that they mutated. The viruses are mutating constantly. Yeah. They're a tiny chunk of DNA that every time it replicates, it has the option again evolution. It has the option for a mutation to happen that could either make it better at being a virus or worse at being a virus. And in those little mutations, what can happen is that it can be able to live in a different host because viruses need hosts. They can't just crawl around on the ground and stay alive. Like they need to be inside of a cell to reproduce. So I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Uh, So like viruses and bacteria, they're not quite the same. So like a bacteria is its own living thing. It's like a Mm -hmm. single celled organism. Sometimes there's multiple cells. I think Um, someone's going to yell at me. A virus is a mooch. He needs others. Yeah, a virus is literally just DNA inside a capsule. I heard on this uh, podcast called like the Health Podcast. Uh, you might have heard of this guy, but he said our body at all times has like seven trillion viruses in it at once. You know, I'm not gonna doubt him. Sorry, I don't have any reason to doubt him. <laughs> okay, sorry to cut you off, but <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, I don't remember what you're talking about. <laughs> Oh, oh God! Well, I I do. We were talking about different kinds of coronavirus. Oh yeah, bird influenza. Oh yeah, yeah. they can jump. Um, so yeah, that was the thing is that uh, based on the genetics of this coronavirus, people who study coronaviruses and other viruses and are very smart mm-hmm. about these things were able to identify that it did originally come from a bat. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Yeah, because I've never thought of the coronavirus as like it's part of this family of other coronaviruses. I always just thought like it's the coronavirus, you know, this is what it is. And this, like, we're just like unlucky that it mutated. I didn't know that there were a bunch of different kinds of coronavirus. I don't know. I I find that interesting. I I just didn't know that. Well, one of the cool things that I thought was cool that they noticed very, very early on as the pandemic is that um, children Mm -hmm. weren't getting very sick because the most of the coronaviruses that we encounter before this pandemic, the majority of them were like the common cold. Like they'd make you kind of sick yeah, and gross. And like you got a cold and it was no biggie. Um, SARS was a coronavirus, but that of course killed a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so what was happening is that these little kids who were at school all the time, spitting on each other's faces, touching each other all the time, sharing food, like just being disgusting because kids are disgusting. They had the immune. They, yeah. they were exposed to so many different coronaviruses that their immune systems, because of their immune memory, kind of knew in general what coronaviruses look like and had seen it pretty recently enough that if they were to get the coronavirus, they were more likely to be able to fight it off before they got sick hmm. than potentially an adult would be. Yeah, I actually heard a story similar to that. Um, 
they did testing on I think it was like 24 homeless people that like were in this one specific shelter that was near like a pretty like uh, hotbed for like coronavirus um, diagnoses and they all had the antibodies, like all 24 of them and or like whatever number it was, they all had the antibodies and they'd all had it, but they weren't showing symptoms because they had, they're living outside. They're ex- exposed to the elements. It's kind of like the kids who are like, they're more, they're more filthy. They've like yeah. built their immune system to be able to fight off things that are similar to the coronavirus. And that, I just find that so interesting. So, so like, I have a question then. It's like, so it's like, if you've lived too clean of a life, you might actually be more but, susceptible. But then what, what happens if, okay, this is like going off of your point. If you've lived a really clean life, then you're more susceptible to, um, like a common cold affecting you a lot worse. Where at like Matt, like what about these people who grew up in very bad living conditions? They've built up this huge, huge immunology, but a, like, are they more susceptible to bad, like really bad viruses then? Because none of like, none of the other viruses can affect them. You get what I'm saying? I see what you're trying to say. Um, so let me think how to answer this. Um, Basically, we'll start with the hygiene hypothesis. Have you heard of the hygiene hypothesis? No. I haven't heard of it. Okay, I so, can assume what it is. Yeah. but Well, that's the idea that, like, um, we've in general gotten better with hygiene, and we know about germs, and we wash our hands, and we have hand sanitizer and all these things, which are good. I'm not saying that they're not good. Mm-hmm. But we're also less likely to go outside and, and roll around in the dirt for a few hours and then come in and eat our food with our dirty hands. So the things that we are exposed to in very low levels, because what happens is when you expose yourself to like, if you rub your hands in the dirt and then rub your face and it gets in your mouth, what will happen is that your immune system, which is always working, always checking what's going on, we'll see a tiny bit of this one thing, this one bacteria, and it'll say, I know what that looks like now. And it, you won't have an immune response to it because you are not sick, but your body has seen it. It's like taking your, your um, body to school. What's that? It's like taking your body to school. They're learning different, uh, different things to recognize to protect your body more, right? Yeah, it's like, I know what that looks like yeah. and whatever. So, and I'm super oversimplifying this, but the idea is that if you're not doing that, then what happens is if you're exposed to something maybe in a greater quantity or at a different time in your life, because kids are really, really good at building their immune system because they're kids, mm-hmm. they have to learn. I'm <laughs> making this sound terrible, but basically like kids, especially babies, are what's called tolerogenic, mm-hmm. meaning that their immune system is very tolerant. They're not going to... Um, mount a giant immune response that makes them really, really sick, they're more likely to look at something and say, cool, I know what you are now, and maybe not really worry about it because they're building their immune system and also trying to also colonize their body with all the bacteria that we need to live and be humans. Um, I forget where I was going with this. I went off the rails. No, it's okay. Um, uh, I, 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 it was kind of answering that like, question of uh, if someone's yeah, living... So like, See all this stuff, and then if you're older and you see it, you're more likely to for your immune system to be like, "Wow, what is this?" Right. So, like, it's the idea that if you see more garbage all the time, you might be able to fight things off better, or you might be less likely to develop allergies. They're finding that things like allergies are a little bit associated with this hygiene hypothesis because allergies are basically when your immune system reacts to something that's not dangerous. 
Like a peanut is not dangerous. Mm-hmm. It's a peanut. But your immune system thinks that it's going to kill you. It so it the, flips out and then the it kills you. Oh, shit. That's so, so cool. That's such a cool way to think of allergies. Or even like seasonal allergies. It's grass. Grass doesn't do anything. But your body's like, ah, itchy. And like it makes mm-hmm. you have an, a specific immune response called an allergy response mm-hmm. to it. Um, so it's the idea that if you are exposed your body's not going to freak out. So are you more um, likely to develop an allergy if you move from like two like polar opposite climates? Like say you move from like, you grow up in like Alaska and then you move down to the rainforest. Are you going to be like more uh, susceptible to like get an allergy to like the environment or like things around you? Or would it, ju- or is, I guess that, um, does that I don't sense? quite know enough about that to okay. comment on it, no, it but I do know a... that like well, something that happens a lot is um, people will live with a dog their whole life. They'll always have a dog, a pet dog, and then they go to university, come home for Christmas break, and they're suddenly allergic to their dog. And it's because they weren't constantly exposed to the pet dander. Man that they realized that they actually had an had a animal allergy that whole time. It's just that that low-grade exposure was keeping their body saying, this is fine, don't worry about it. This is always here, and we're always fine. And then once they were away from it and came back to it, their body was like, ah, and had to be allergic. Man, wow. that would break my heart. That would break my heart. <laughs> um, it's never happened. My, Rizzo's, she's, she's hypoallergenic, so I, I found out it can't I, happen for me, but like that would break my heart if... I left my dog, and then all of a sudden, I can't even be around her without sneezing. That would I found fa- I found dagger. zombie cell on Google. Oh, tell us <laughs> the zombie cell. Zombie cells are actually called senescent cells. Senescent. Oh, cells? senescent cells. Yeah, they start out normal, but then encounter a stress like damage to their DNA or a viral infection. At that point, a cell can choose to die or become a zombie, basically entering a state of suspended animation. Or yeah, animation. So I don't know. That sounds way scarier than a senescent cell actually is. (laughs) Okay, yeah. Give us the rundown on that because I've heard a lot. I I don't know why I've heard about it. I heard. So I mean, like that's that's honestly exactly what it is. So it's usually in a case of extreme damage, usually to the DNA, um, because so cancer is uh, is a mutation in your own cells. That's what cancer is. It's nothing else but your own cells going off the rails and growing and dividing, and they won't stop. And that's because of mutations in their DNA. Um, And senescence is kind of a mechanism of your body against that, which is um, if they're, so for example, this is a terrible example, the sun, it radiates your body. It's what it does, UV radiation, and that can actually mutate your cells. That's how you get skin cancer in a lot of cases. If one of your cells got radiated by the sun and there was enough damage to it that it noticed that it wasn't quite right it would stop growing and dividing because your cells are always growing and dividing. Um, it would be like, nope, it would, it would turn off all of its machinery. It wouldn't produce any uh, proteins anymore. It's not going to grow and divide. And it just stays there. It doesn't die and go away and get carried out into waste. It just is now done. Well, wow. and, and that's so, a zombie cell. But so what's, what are like, are there any ill effects to having zombie cells or just something that happens that doesn't really affect anything? Um, I mean, you can't have all your cells do that. You yeah. <laughs> would stop working. Um, you know, 
But like, I, I just don't know, like, where would you have heard the term zombie cell and like, why was it like relevant? That's what I'm trying to figure out. Well, we're going over the whole system here. No, I know. I just, system I, here. I just I, thought you maybe had heard it like when we were talking I, about, when I, we were talking about I, like, I wanna, viruses or something. I don't know. I want to go into like, uh, like the question I asked you about the broad science is what like do you find most interesting? But I want to know that about the immune system. To you, what's the most interesting thing that most people wouldn't know or wouldn't think about? When it comes to the immune system, like what is there like specific cells or organs that, um, or is it all working together in a certain way? Like, what is it? I mean, immune memory is wicked cool, but I don't know enough about it right. because that's, um, there's two branches of your immune system. There is like adaptive immunity and innate immunity. And in my degree, I studied innate immunity, which means that my adaptive immunity understanding is really, really rudimentary. Mm -hmm. I just know that they're there and that they do stuff. Um, so, but like, those are the ones that make your immune memory. So basically like when you've encountered a pathogen before, so like that, this is the point, actually I'll do, I'll do immune memory because this is vaccines and vaccines are very important. Okay. Here we go. Everyone a lesson. Here we go. <laughs> Luke's a, Luke's, a, Luke's an anti-vaxxer. So you can, <laughs> no, you can help not. him. No. <laughs> I haven't gotten that, any vaccines ever. Mm -hmm. And somehow I'm strolling around. Nope. You've, you haven't gotten any vaccines Of ever. course I got vaccinated. I went to Africa. You think I'm just going to... You're not allowed to go to school. Nobody's poking his skin, I'll yeah. tell you that. They said, are you worried about yellow fever? I'm like, I've had it twice. I'm more Fuck worried off about, with your needles. I'm more worried about Bill Gates. <laughs> yeah. That's what Luke's saying. Yeah. <laughs> my whole thing is I have to see the success rate before I jam it in myself. Mm -hmm. So the, the, You got to look at the charts. Yeah. That's something a, a scientist told me. I mean, it's reasonable. Yeah. Anyway, you whatever sorry, you want. I interrupted with my joke there. <laughs> Where are we going? <laughs> um, so vaccines kind of uh, hijack the immune memory system to make you not get sick. So um, if you get the flu, let's say, because the flu is very common, hmm. you get infected with the flu and you get sick. You have a cough, you have a fever, you have the aches and pains, you feel horrible, your lungs... Hopefully you don't get pneumonia and die, um, but you know you have a terrible time having the flu, and then it goes away because your immune system fought it off. What happened is in the process of fighting that off, your B and T cells, which are again I'm oversimplifying this, uh, they are um, your adaptive immune cells. They were busy fighting off this infection. So the T cells, they were um, killing all the cells that were infected with this virus because the flu is a virus. So they were uh, killing all those cells. The B cells, they were making all the antibodies that are specific for the cells. And then what happens is after your infection is done, so sorry, when you get that infection, you have what's called clonal expansion of all those immune cells that are going to help. So when you have an infection, the B and T cells that are specific for flu, grow and divide and grow and divide to massive numbers so that they can take care of the infection. Once that's over, you have all these immune cells that are like, there's no space for us because there's no infection anymore. So some of them die. Some of them, I don't know, float around a little longer, check on stuff. And then some of them differentiate into something called immune memory. The specifics of that, I do not understand. I won't even try to describe it, but they become memory cells, which means that they are now going to live forever mm -hmm. being specific for that one flu that you had. And they're going to hang out in your in corners of your organs wow. that I don't understand either. So, and they're going to wait. Here's another one of my half-baked analogies. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so 
The ones that stick around are kind of like consultants for the rest of your immune system. They're like, oh, you got, have you guys seen these things before? And they're like, oh yeah, we dealt with those back in 08. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're like, they're yeah. like old veterans. Exactly. Yeah. That, okay. Yeah. So that yeah, one actually like works. We're like, we know that one. Yeah. yeah. Um, I actually, when I was TAing a class, I had one kid write the story of a, of a T-cell's life as if he was an old dying veteran. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You got to bring that on next time. You got to read that out loud. Yeah, I don't know if you oh gave God, it to God, I don't know if I'm allowed to do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so anyway, those cells are, they now have memory. So now what happens is next year, if you get the flu, and if the flu looks similar to the flu they had last time, so the flu mutates every year, that's why I have a new flu shot every year, but if it's similar enough to the one that you had next time, those cells are going to be like, we got it. And you're just going to clonally expand those cells that you already know. These ones are ready to go. They've got the right protein and you expand them and they go and attack. And you don't have to go through your innate immune system, checking it out, making sure it's okay, going and talking to these other people, make the new cells. Like there's all these steps that you don't have to do anymore. And that's why vaccines work because what vaccines do is they take the influenza Something mm -hmm. like that. Okay, I'm gonna get this wrong. A chunk of the flu. Mm -hmm. so every year when you get the flu shot, what happens is people who are experts on the flu have to try to predict the future and guess what the flu is going to look like in the coming year. They do the very best that they can. Sometimes they're great, sometimes they do it worse. Okay. Um, and so they try to guess what it's gonna look like. And then they take a chunk of that flu, what they think it's going to look like. They put it in with things called, um, oh no, sorry, they kill it first. They make it so that it can't, it either can't get into your cells or they make it so that once it's in your cells, it can't divide and actually make you sick. It has no capability to actually grow and divide and give you an infection. Mm -hmm. It just is what it is. And they put it into your body with something called an adjuvant, which is basically something that alerts your immune system. So this thing isn't actually going to make you sick, which means it could float in and out of your body and you would never see it again because it's just benign. It doesn't do anything. But the adjuvant, when it goes in with the um, bit of the virus, is like basically an alarm for your immune system saying, look at me, look at me, I'm dangerous, please react to me right now. And your immune system is going to come in and make all these cells for this thing, but you're not actually going to get sick because that thing can't infect you, but now you've mounted the additional immune response to that virus. And if you see it again, you'll know how to deal with it. And hopefully you either will only get a little bit sick or you won't get sick at all. It's like a contingency plan. Like, I mean, hopefully like it's plan A. Well, no, it's like, it's like a, it's like a brief, it's like a briefing for yourself, like an info briefing for yourselves. It's just like, okay, you guys, this could happen soon. It's not happening now, but it, this could happen soon. So, like, build up your defenses and be prepared for this. We're yeah, sending... it basically fakes your immune system yeah. into, think, into thinking that you're having an infection mm. without actually having the infection. So that's why some people, when they get the flu shot, say, I got the flu shot, and then the next day I got the flu, because the next day maybe they have a fever or they feel really gross. Right. That's your immune response. That gross feeling that you have oh. is your immune system working. What would you say to people who are anti-vaxxers? <sighs> Probably I would ask everything one. she just said, probably. Yeah. yeah. No, really. Like, so I, uh, my, my uh, previous supervisor uh, who I did my master's with, so that was, again, innate immunology, and she's good at a lot of things. Um, but she would talk to uh, people at the school sometimes about, like, how to talk to people about science. Because not everybody is necessarily receptive, and which is fine. Not everybody has to like science or like mm -hmm. that. Um and some people have other ideas about things which might not be founded in truth, but they're going to tell us anyway. 
Um, so she would kind of talk to us about like how to talk to people that might be wary of vaccines. And uh, the number one thing I think is to ask them why. Because um, if someone is staunch, hard, vaccines are the worst thing that we've ever made. They're going to kill all of our kids and make us all be, uh, you're not going to change their minds. Nothing that I say to that person is going to change their mind. They have a deep religious like belief that vaccines are bad. Well, yeah, they, like some people correlate it to causing autism. Some people correlate it to like, there's a plethora of things that they, they'll yeah. say like. But there are some people and, you know, this example was actually given by my supervisor that she knew someone who had a baby and actually came to my supervisor and said, I am thinking of not vaccinating my child. <laughs> and my supervisor was like, okay, what, what do you mean? And she said, well, I have this beautiful, precious, tiny little baby. And this baby in the first six months of their life is going to get stuck with how many needles? And that, like, do I really have to give them all of those needles? And they cry when it happens. And, I, like, it was just, the like, they saw, thought that they were just so little that how can they possibly need all these needles? Can't we just wait? Can't we see what happens? Everyone else doesn't get measles. Why are they going to get measles? Like that kind of idea of just this is herd immunity type thing. Well, which is true, but like, let's save that for the people with cancer. Yeah. But, um, you know, just the idea that like she wasn't saying that vaccines, are the worst things in the whole world and are going to be the end of time thing. But she was just like, look at my precious little baby. I don't want it stuck with so many needles. Do I really need to do this? Yeah. And then you can really speak to that person and say, well, here's why it's important that we give them these vaccines at these ages, why it's going to make their lives and other people's lives better. Um, so yeah, depends why the person is against vaccines. Yeah. Right. I've always looked at it as like humans just have an innate fear of things they don't understand. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really even understand vaccines and what they did to like but to like a significant extent until this podcast here where she's <laughs> explaining where how uh, the how the body actually uses vaccines to protect you and that the symptoms that you get are actually your immune system working and not your body actually getting the virus. Vaccines yeah. are the number one public health success mm -hmm. of the 21st century. Of modern times, honestly, like antibiotics were super cool, but now they're becoming less cool. Like vaccines are a prophylactic. They're not in response to something happening. They are. Let's not let this happen. Let's not let all the yeah. kids get measles. Let's not have smallpox. Mm -hmm. Like, let's not get sick at all. How about we just don't get sick? They're. Just the smallpox numbers alone. Like after the smallpox vaccine came out, like smallpox used to be like the worst disease like one of the worst diseases in the world in like the eight the nine early 1900s way and before that for yeah, forever <laughs> and now it's now it's essentially been eliminated like when was the last smallpox die, uh, death in north america like 100 years ago uh, like, yeah like in the ninth i think it was in the 1900s yeah like it's it's incredible what vaccines actually do 
And I just think, yeah, it's the fear. People like to say, oh, it's uh, because we've learned, that, like, how, like you were saying, like, our bodies people, have become immune to it. Well, I don't know about that, and but it was like people have like learned how to clean themselves better, so that's eliminated some of the virus. I mean, like that probably. honestly makes you not get sick as well. Please don't take me saying eat all the dirt as being don't wash your hands. No, Please no, no. Hands. No, I'm saying like what people who who would say like well, part of the reason people have gotten like a lot healthier as well is the cleanliness. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I had something in my se- head. I totally forgot. We have forget. sewers now. We don't just dump a bucket in the middle of the street. Yeah. Like they yeah. used to in medieval times. That's why Black Plague happened. <laughs> yeah. The bubonic well, plague. was rats. Yeah, rats that ate shit. Well. <laughs> that, that is what it is, wasn't it? It's was rats that ate, that ate shit and then bit your food and then you ate the food. Listen, if you haven't eaten a slice of poo, you are not living. All right? <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean... I've had I've been enlightened on a lot of different things during this podcast. There's what I want to know one more thing. You're working okay. at Toronto General right now in I think you said lung, lung transplant? transplant research. What exact like what exactly goes into that? That's, That's a deep. Okay. You're asking like exactly, big questions. but that gives her more playroom because yeah. she'll be able to really let the audience know. Well, step I can tell step. you what what my lab is doing. Yeah, okay. I just Let's, want to make sure you have time, right, for this. You have time. Yeah. Cool. I'm just making yeah, sure. I live alone. <laughs> all right. Nothing well, else to do. Sure. Let's talk all night. <laughs> um. So, all right. Lung transplant. So, what my lab does is we look at something called CLAD, which is chronic lung allograft disease. That would be super embarrassing if I got that wrong. But basically, it's when um, you get a lung transplant and it starts to not work after a long period of time. So um, back up a little bit. We're really good at transplanting organs now. We got really good at it. We figured out how to do it. The reason that your body doesn't take a transplanted organ is because of your immune system. So because your immune system's job is to recognize things that are not you. They look at something that is not your cells and they go, you are not mine, and they attack it. So we got really good at figuring out how to make your immune system not freak out at putting someone else's organ in your body. That's why you have to have like a transplant match. They have to look similar enough to your cells. Mm-hmm. Um, but other organs, we're pretty good at it. Lungs fail really, really easily. Mm-hmm. And not just like right off the bat, over a long period of time. Like I think the, I'm going to get this wrong, but I think the survival time for a transplanted lung is approximately five years. Wow. Um, it can go longer. It's not like it's, that's never happened, but that's the average is five years before that allograft fails. And that's because your lungs have their own immune system. So any environment in your body that can come into contact with the outside. So let's say for example, your mouth in your mouth, you are talking, opening your mouth, eating food. And that means that bacteria, viruses, anything, parasites, anything can get into your mouth. Mm-hmm. Same with your gut. So everyone talks about the gut microbiome and a healthy gut. Mm-hmm. Your gut is in contact with the outside because anything that you eat or ingest eventually goes to your gut. Mm-hmm. So your gut is chock full of bacteria and its own specific immune system that is able to look at things and say, nah, you're not dangerous or look at things and say, oh, you super are dangerous and That's... attack it 
That's the way your gut looked at that bacon yesterday. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Luke scared me last night thinking we both had food poisoning. We ate some some some, old bacon. Some questionable bacon. (laughs) Our gut biomes are dancing. We have beautiful guts. (laughs) So, yeah. Sorry to interrupt. I just thought I'd add that little little quib, a little inside look into our life. (laughs) That's perfect. Um, but your lungs are the same because you breathe in air. Mm-hmm. So your lungs have contact with the outside and they have similar to your gut, what's called a mucosal immune environment. So that means that the surfaces of the of the cells, so you have what are called epithelial cells, which are cells that are in contact with the outside world is the simplest way of putting it. And they are covered in layers of mucus and that helps uh, facilitate their specific immune environment. But basically they have to be able to react to the, to the outside environment differently than say your heart does. Your heart's never gonna come in contact with food or the air. That's just not gonna happen. It's mm-hmm. a sterile environment basically. Um, but your lungs do all day, every day, you breathe in, whatever. And so it has its own immune environment. But then what happens is when you transplant a lung, you transplant that immune environment. And also your body wants to facilitate that immune environment, right? Like your body, once you get a new set of lungs in, is like, gotta go to the lungs, and it's like, gotta go deal with stuff there. Um, so basically the fact that the lungs have their own immune environment makes transplants really, really difficult because the immune system is what causes rejection. Mm-hmm. And if that's kind of different and kind of out of whack and like the process of doing a lung transplant creates a lot of damage and your immune system reacts to damage, that's its job. So if the cells that are in your lungs are like, dude, what just happened? Like everything just got destroyed. They're going to freak out. And so then this is way simple. Someone in my lab is going to be really mad at me for doing this wrong, Mm -hmm. but basically they fail. Uh, They don't always do great. And sometimes they fail after right away. And sometimes they fail after a few years. And that's what CLAD is, is it's chronic. It's after a long Mm -hmm. amount of time, long amount of time, it starts to fail and it starts to do worse and worse and your lungs aren't working properly anymore. And then you need to take those lungs out and put new ones in or you might die. So um, during, for a lung transplant, um, would this might be oversimplifying it again, but would somebody who lived a similar lifestyle to you be a better like uh, person to donate their lung to you? Or like, like blood type? Well, a blood so, type for sure, but she said, like, going back to the, it has its own immune system. Right. So, like, say, like, I'm somebody that lives in a big city, and I'm, my lungs are more, uh, are more, um, uh, they're more. Yeah, getting, like, a Peruvian lung wouldn't, yeah, well, wouldn't yeah, be like the best. Well, yeah, like, they get, they get, uh, they get a certain level of toxins from the air quality that's around, or, like, maybe, like, somebody that smoked cigarettes for a little bit and like quit like kind of like you did like maybe your lungs would me no 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 (laughs) like say say you were getting a lung transplant and you smoked cigarettes and then your lung has an immune system that maybe like it's still a healthy lung but like it's seen cigarette smoke come into it before like somebody who is donating this lung also smoked cigarettes in their past, lived in a big city just like you, would that make it more likely to be accepted by your body or is that just like semantics? So that is almost not relevant because there are two things that are way, way, way more important. Number one is that there is a lung. Someone Mm -hmm. died and donated their organ. Yes, of course. Number two is 
Oh, I'm going to get this so wrong. Fake lungs. (laughs) Called like HLA matching. Basically, people who started doing transplants realized that your cells need to, I'm going to get this so wrong, but basically you can have an HLA match or mismatch. Okay. Someone's gonna get so mad. I like how she's like laughing. Um, we're like, we have no clue yeah. what's. <laughs> oh, someone's gonna watch and be like, she's. So it's like a Tinder match. It's like a match trans- I don't. I work at immunology. <laughs> um, so if they have a, there's a protein called an HLA. It's on cells. HLA. You need. There are certain types of HLAs. If you transplant any organ into your body that is not HLA matched, your immune system's gonna flip immediately. It's gonna be like, you are not mine, and that's when you get acute rejection okay like it's graft versus host disease basically where it's like nah and it kills the whole thing so what's way more important is that that is correct so that's why people sometimes wait on the transplant okay. list for years because no one died with a matched organ or okay. something like that or someone was ahead of them on the transplant list i don't know um but that's way 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 more important definitely definitely but i was then, just so, so like it's almost i get what you were trying to say yeah, and like just, we don't know yet i mm-hmm. think that we don't know enough about that yet potentially but as of right now that's that's really just not relevant kind of what we're yeah. looking at so you're so saying like, i'm ahead of science with my thinking yeah oh you're so far ahead. <laughs> thank you thank you i'm just i'm just trying to move humanity forward that's exactly what I'm trying you're to leaps and bounds ahead of us Perfect. really no no i mean i'm not Listen, I couldn't You know Albert. I'm not an X's and O's guy. I'm just an ideas guy. That's all <laughs> yeah. I am. I'm not going to get down to the nitty-gritty on how to actually get into it, but I'm just I'm thinking I'm thinking about ways that maybe you guys can progress later on once you've got this I'd down. actually be excited for the science <laughs> <I'm kidding>. community <laughs> if you had totally gotten Totally talking it. out of my ass. I'm excited if you, for the science community. Like think about if you had have gotten into it where they'd be. Yeah. I mean, if yeah, if I wasn't just an idiot with a mic? No. <laughs> no. I mean, yeah, we just need you around some more. I got an, I got, I'm going to follow that up with how, come on, how close are we to throwing a grown, like like a, a lab-grown lung or a fake lung in someone and it working? Give me the numbers. Uh, I got to know. I might start smoking. It's close. Um, we're, I don't want to say that we're close, but we're not not close. Okay. So, like, it's not like that's, like, it is kind of science fiction still, mm-hmm. but... Uh, Toronto General, I think a lot of places not can do it, but Toronto General was the first place to do it. This is their claim to fame. Um, they were the first ones to uh, breathe lungs outside the body while they wait for the donor. So cool. usually all transplants have to be like as fast as possible. We can't let this organ die. Basically, they can breathe lungs for days. I think they breathed the lung for, I'm saying it's stupid, but they kept a lung alive. Mm-hmm for like a week before they transplant it into the person and they have this whole fake environment where like the lung is put onto the system where the blood vessels are being um, perfused, I think that's the word, with stuff keeping that part alive. It's be, it's on like a ventilator so it's mm-hmm. still functioning so that the, it doesn't become necrotic and die and then it can be transplanted. That is not making a fake lung. I'm not saying that that's the no, same. No. But I'm saying that we can do super cool things that we couldn't do before. There's like areas of study where you for because like right now when we do a lot of studies with cells we're doing them in plates which are flat and that's not representative of how the body works the body is not a flat layer of cells on a plate so some people are doing things called i'm gonna get this wrong also but it's like organ on chip which is basically like you 3d print something that kind of looks like an organ like it's got the same structure and then you put the cells onto that 
and then you can do your studies in that fake organ environment. Hmm. That's cool. That's amazing. That's really cool. Well, yeah. I, 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 I'm completely fascinated by the immune <laughs> system. I'm going to be studying my books. I'm going to, if you have any recommendations on what to read to fully understand, if there's someone you like to like watch with regard to this on YouTube or something, like, do you have any recommendations for people to kind of learn a little Ooh. more? I have a podcast recommendation. Okay, here we go. I love podcasts. The podcasts LA, the LA really Army's great. listening. Um, this is not, this is epidemiology. The podcast is called This Podcast Will Kill You. Uh, it was started by two epidemiologist grad students who every episode talk about a different disease. Wow. So like in their season one, they talk about influenza, they talk about tuberculosis, tuberculosis they talk about HIV, they talk about Ebola, they talk about all these different diseases. They go into the biology of the disease. They go into the where it came from. They actually did an entire, like it's like a 10-part series on COVID-19 at the start of the pandemic. So they talked about spillover. What is, so spillover is when you get a, disease moving from an animal to a human. Um, That kind of jump is called spillover. So they talk about like what spillover is, how does it happen? And then they go into like the anatomy of a pandemic. How does it start? What kinds of responses happen? How does it end? And Mm -hmm. yeah, they're super cool. That's awesome. Is there any any place you want people to like see your stuff? Like do you have any papers out or... Um, no, that's my sad story. No. I've never been published. <laughs> that's all right. Hey, when you write your first book or if you have anything out, you're going to come back on and you know where you're going to promote it first, the LA podcast. Well, you're Absolutely. a friend. Yeah, you're a friend of the show. We're definitely going to have you on. Uh, you're our most intelligent guest to date. Um, so we're going to have you on to talk more science in uh, at a later date. Wow, um, that's so exciting for me. The recurring 100%. guest. Yeah. You know what? Fan favorite Grace Teske is about to come back. <laughs> Fan favorite? No one was here. We can't thank you enough, and uh, we were excited to have you, and it was a – I think you nailed it. We were our, – well, our points were a little chaotic. Look, look the way that – see, this is – they always describe, like, like ways of understanding. The most simplistic way to, for somebody that doesn't know anything about something is to compare it to something else. And I feel like that's what I was trying to do the entire time. Right. Is like get like a broad sense. You're like Bill by, Nye. By like direct comparisons. And I was exactly I went, like Bill Nye. I went yeah. way off on a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> but I was trying. I was just, I was really trying to understand. Well, Honestly, that's a, that's a skill that not everyone has. So mm-hmm. you're, you're well on your way Thank to you. the comparison skill yeah thank Thank you you, grace and uh yeah thank you for coming on and and informing our giant audience about everything you know thank you for my first podcast experience i feel (laughs) no problem honored no problem all right see you guys (laughs) thanks like comment subscribe (laughs) grace teske grace teske everyone